93.5 WBLS celebrating 50 years of the world's best looking sound and celebrating Black History Month by spotlighting those who made their mark in the tri-state area. Listen all month long to see how the legacy lives on in Black History's footsteps with 107.5 WBLS. Check, 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 one, two. This is Charlie Wilson. 107.5. My number one for R&B. Yeah, man. What up, y'all? This is Usher. WBLS HD1 New York. New York. 107.5. Let's go. WBLS. You could unlock a precious payout with the New Jersey Lottery's Precious Metals family of scratch-offs. Play today. Coming to you live from the studios of 107.5 WBLS. This is Open Line. We want to hear what's on your mind. Call us at 212-545-1075 or email us at openlinefm at aol.com. Good morning and welcome to Open Line on this President's Day holiday and NBA All-Star Weekend, Sunday, February 18th. And the NBA All-Star Game will air later tonight live at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm your host, Brother Fatine. And joining me every Sunday is my co-host, the sophisticated lady, Jennifer Jones, Austin Esquire. Good morning, Sister Jennifer. How are you doing on this third Sunday of Black History Month? Hi, I'm doing. I'm doing. I'm a little sleepy. I'm on uh, Mountain Time today. I'm in Arizona uh, mm-hmm. at uh, a, uh, a series of baseball games. Uh, my son's playing, and so, you know, I had to do what I could do to be here with him, and um, just, you know, glad to be out here, but also glad to be with all of you this morning, excited to be with you. I never want to miss a Sunday, and so here I am, maybe a little early in Arizona, but I'm with you all. Yeah, and it's right around the corner. Pitches and catches reported to uh, spring training. Players are following, and you're right, is getting ready next month. It will be spring. Jennifer, we are moving fast this morning. Let me just let our listening audience know uh, that we have a lot of moving parts on today's open line broadcast. We pretty much had a set show, but because of the news cycle, we moved things around to accommodate our listeners. And with that being said, we will have a rapid fire segment starting in a few minutes on the topics of former President Donald Trump being ordered to pay nearly $355 million and interest in his New York civil fraud trial. We will also mix in with our rapid fire callers the new story of Georgia Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis testifying on Thursday at the hearing of allegations that she had an improper relationship with her lead prosecutor in the Georgia election interference case against Donald Trump and his co-defendants. So folks, what I want you to do right now, begin to dial for the, to to uh, be part of this rapid fire segment on those two stories, the telephone number here to reach us at open line is two one two five four five one zero seven five. Again, that number is two one two five four five one zero seven five. And remember, you have just forty seconds or less to make your comment during the rapid fire segment. If you go over forty seconds, we. Hit that bell and we're going to move on (laughs) 
to our next caller. We want to make sure that we got this story, these two stories in before we go to our special guest that will be coming up maybe around 8.15 this morning. So uh, while our producers, Robin and Juliana, are lining up your calls, Jennifer, briefly, what is your take on the Trump being fined $355 million in the New York civil fraud trial brought by New York AG Attorney General Letitia James, as well as the hearing this week in Georgia that may or may not get DA Fannie Willis and her team kicked off the Georgia election interference case against Donald Trump and others. So, you know, I said to you a little earlier this week that uh, Trump is now two for two. Everybody's been saying, will this man ever be held accountable for any of his actions? And now we've had two court cases that have you know, made their way through the system, two court cases. And in both cases, the E.G. Carroll case, where he's been fined $83 million and he's been found guilty of rape, and he's got to pay her $83 million for defamation, I should say civilly liable for rape. He's got to pay her for defamation, $83 million. And now $350 million in fines. And then uh, with interest, they're saying it could be better than $450 million because uh, the court found that he deceived lenders about the value of his properties and about his own net worth. So we're two for two, two court cases that have made their way through the system. And in both cases, he is liable. That's good news. Now, of course, you know, like there'll be questions about whether he can ultimately pay. They say he's not going to go bankrupt, but we should take heart in that, that in two cases, he's been found liable. And we're talking about like, you know, well over $500 million in fines and penalties. Now, in the Fannie Willis case, you know, I just mentioned that I'm out here at uh, uh, baseball games, uh, you know, and I don't know a lot about baseball, but, you know, uh, Fatine, uh, they, they often talk about unforced errors. Mm-hmm. What happened with Fannie Willis was an unforced error. You know, smart woman, capable woman. And we can talk at we can talk at length about whether or not, you know, the black woman was put out there and mistreated and we can we can we can walk through that. But we have to begin with an understanding that what she did, if in my opinion, was an unforced error. You know, to be involved with somebody uh with a high profile case such as this Yeah, I know that she tried to find other people, but, you know, I do feel for her. She knew what she should have known. She should have paid for her own trips outright. I'm not faulting her or saying she shouldn't have had the relationship. But in many ways, to me, it feels like an unforced error. Now, the defense for one of uh, Trump's co-conspirators is trying to have her removed. And the bar that has to be uh, reached, what they have to be able to show, is that she benefited from this relationship. She benefited from putting him in this position as special prosecutor over all of the proceedings in connection with Trump and his cronies' efforts to essentially, uh, you know, like turn over election results in Georgia. They have to show that she benefited by putting this guy who she was in a relationship with in the position of special prosecutor, and they're using some uh, expenses, you know, in connection with the trips that she took with him. It's a high bar to uh, for, for them to pass, and they haven't yet. They have not proven that she benefited illegally. She can have a relationship with whomever she wants. There's nothing in the Georgia laws that says she couldn't date this man. I just wish, in hindsight, and we all make mistakes. We all trip up. This is one of those where I wish that she maybe had thought about it before she engaged, because it actually it just it reflects on her credibility. It has nothing to do with the merits of the case. And hopefully she'll survive this. Uh, I don't think that they they met the, the standard for her to be disqualified from presiding over the case. 
but she has taken a blow to her credibility and her integrity. And that's unfortunate. And that's what I mean by unforced error. I agree with you, Sister Jennifer. I definitely agree with you. And then Thursday, you know, she caught everybody by surprise. And then, you know, she was chomping at the bit. And when she came in there, she was, you know, you could see she was emotionally charged. And I said Mm -hmm. to myself, come on, D.A. Fanny, I understand, but don't be to the point that you lose your cool or they back you into something. But when she said that you lie, and I understand when someone lies on you, And you know how you feel, you get anxious, you know, and you definitely want to confront those that are lying on you. So that's interesting. Again, folks, we in our rapid fire segment. We're dealing with the Trump uh, fine in the New York uh, civil fraud trial. And we're also dealing with uh, Georgia uh, Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis. 212-545-1075. You have 40 seconds or less. All right, let's go to the phone, Sister Jennifer. Let's go to line two and bring John calling us from Florida. Good morning, John. Good morning, Open Line. Um, and the Oscar goes to Fanny. You know, I, she was passionate, as you just indicated. She hit every point online. And, she, and if both of them are single, who... It's right, is it, for people to pierce into their private life? It's all about the case, and it's all about going after Trump. Thank you. All right. Sounds good. Appreciate that there. All right. Let's go to line three. Bring Walter calling us from Brooklyn. Good morning, Walter. You're on the air. Good morning, family. It's bad, opt- it's bad optics with family, with family dead. Now, Trump's going to say he couldn't get a fair trial. You know, um, you gotta be, we got to be thinking people. You know, she messed up. I know Jennifer said it was unforced error. She should definitely knew better than that. You know, personal relationship may not have been, had nothing to do with the case, but you're dealing with Trump. And he's going to look for every loophole to win, to, you know, not to get convicted. And they had him. Finally, 11,780 votes. They had him, too. They had him. She done messed up. She messed up. You know, so it's, 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 it's her fault. You got to know things, certain things you can't do. You know, because it's a pinch. So now you get in front of a jury, her credibility is shot. All right, Walter, thank you for that. All right, let's go to line four and bring Samuel calling us from Brooklyn. Good morning, Samuel. You're on the air. Yes, good morning. I just want to give Letitia James the highest uh, award allowed. And if Eric Adams can migrate all the immigrants to all the Trump properties that we're going to take in the state of New York, That'll help New York City housing authority. Thank you. Have a nice day. All right. Appreciate that. All right. Let's go back to the phones. Let's go to line five and bring Larry calling us from New Jersey. Good morning, Larry. You're on open line. Your thoughts. Good morning, open line. Uh, this is, uh, I'm very proud of Fanny. You know, I admit she, she got emotional. But, you know, what we must not do is just is, is, is keep talking about how emotional she got. She proved her point. She proved that... Um, you know, what was done was done illegally, and she was she was as a chief enforcement officer of Georgia doing what she does best. And it's just a shame that we always have to deal with an unlevel playing field, and and how we as a people say, oh, she shouldn't have done this, she shouldn't have done that, which is true. But we still need to support her and stand by her. Thank you. 
All right, right on time. I appreciate that. And we wasn't criticizing her being emotional. I just was like, take it easy, calm down, make sure that you're in control. All right, let's go to line six and bring Michael calling us from the Bronx. Good morning, Michael. Your thoughts. Good morning. Good morning. First off, the um, civil judgment against Trump, that's just the beginning, especially when you have all the criminal cases coming up. And as far as finding Willis is going for, um, bravo to her. She stood her ground. This has nothing to do with the case pending against Trump. That is a private matter, and she was keeping it private, nothing unethical. You want to talk about unethical? Go back to 30 years ago along the same lines, Marsha Clark and Chris Darden in the O.J. Simpson case, and two of them flirting each other during the trial. There's your conflict of interest. Compare and contrast that. End of story. All right, Michael, you hit it on time. Appreciate that. Let's go to line seven. Bring Patricia calling us from New York. Good morning, Patricia. You're on open line. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I'll begin by saying Trump's merry band of co-defendants tried to make it initially seem that Fonnie Willis was responsible for Nathan Wade's uh, the marriage breaking up. Even Fox News says she was never named in the divorce transcripts when they were released. Secondly, their relationship was prior to her naming him as special prosecutor. Their relationship was over. She tried to get other prosecutors, but they were too scared to prosecute uh, Donald Trump. And so she gave the position to Nathan Wade they were like, they were still friends, but they were no longer in a relationship. And she established. All right, Patricia, I got to cut you right there. That's past 40 seconds. Thank you for your call. Let's go to line eight and bring Christine calling us from Manhattan. Good morning, Christine. You're on open line. All right. Good morning. Praise God. Uh, the devil shall be seated, uh, Mr. Trump. And kudos to uh, Fanny for defending herself and also uh, yes, when people are emotional, that's what happens. And 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 age doesn't have anything to do with it since they want to criticize uh, Biden. When you're upset, you're upset. And uh, may he be seated. And God bless Letitia James for bringing this case and for succeeding in winning the case. And um, uh, thank God. May he sit down. All right. We appreciate that. We got that all in within that uh, 40 seconds. Let's go to line two and bring Todd calling us from Cleveland, Ohio. Good morning, Todd. You're on open line. Your thoughts. Hey, good morning, Patim and Jennifer. So I have a, I have a comment and a question. You got 40 seconds with it. 40 Fonny seconds, Willis, Fonny Willis should have better maintained her composure when she was on the stand. And bringing her father in for considering she's a middle-aged woman, that was silly. And I think that discredited the whole legal system as a whole as it applies to that matter. My question is, what did the two of you have as an opinion about what should be done about the number of um, immigrants there in New York City and are flooding the homeless shelters and the school systems, taking away money from people that live there? All right, Todd, thank you for that. I'm going to have to hold that. I want to get one more call, and let's go to line four and get Chandra calling us from Austin in New York. Good morning, Chandra. 40 seconds. You are on the air. Yes, good morning. Um, Georgia um, passed a law last year aimed at removing um, DAs. Uh, they created a commission. I had the information in my other phone. I, I, I lost it. 
But please look for that because under Georgia law, they can remove DAs. And it was thought that it was aimed after Fonnie Willis from Jump Street. So let's keep an eye on that, please. Thank you. All right. Appreciate that. Jennifer, real quick, uh, you want to respond to Todd's question. I know it's a little off topic, but briefly, you know, because we have our special guest uh, on the line already. So I'll let you respond yeah. briefly to Todd. It's, it's a little hard to respond to the migrant issue and to be brief. You know, it's an issue that from Jump Street uh, has been a federal matter. And sadly, uh, you know, New York, uh, you know, um, has suffered a lot because of it. Chicago has suffered a lot. Had we, you know, like had the, the migrant issue been treated from day one, let's begin with as a refugee issue, we would have had a lot of less issues with respect to some of the financing attendant to it because refugee money flows more quickly uh, than migrant money does. But it's a, it's a federal matter. If the federal government doesn't act, then New York City, Chicago, and like cities are going to be burdened by it. Uh, I do believe that the Adams administration has really tried to, you know, react and respond to it in uh, a thoughtful and disciplined manner, but it's a, it's a federal matter, and uh, it's not going to be resolved without federal intervention. All right. All right. Sounds good there. I'll let it I'll leave it right there. Um, This is our black history uh, segment. At the beginning of the month, we uh, kicked it off with uh, Joy Reid from MSNBC, the Reid Report, talking about her book about Mega and Merle Evers. And now we have another special guest that is joining us, not a stranger to our broadcast, especially during the COVID time. We had her on uh, Open Line Online dealing with questions and issues around COVID, a lot of things that we were learning in that process. So let me go ahead and introduce our special guest this morning. It's Dr. Uchi Blackstock. She is a physician and thought leader on bias and racism in healthcare. She is the founder and CEO of Advancing Health Equity, MSNBC, NBC News contributor, and she is here to discuss her new book, Legacy, A Black Physician Reckons with Racism in Medicine. Good morning, Dr. Blackstock. Welcome to Open Line. Thank you so much. And that was a beautiful opening. I just have to correct. So my first name is pronounced Uche, because I know if, if I have family members listening, they will be so upset that I didn't correct you. Uche. Okay, there you yeah. go. Uche, yes. Dr. Yes. Uche Blackstock. And, and, and yes. oh, that was the first show that I ever produced what it is in a name, so I have no problem being corrected, oh, of course. Okay. We are supposed to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I want to get into a couple of questions, and I'm going to throw it to, to Sister Jennifer, but it, it's interesting in your book. It seems like we come out of the same neighborhood, and when I was going through your book, Seems like you was raised in Crown Heights. Your mother mm-hmm. worked in Kings County. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, lo- you lost your mother in 1997 at the young age of 47 years old to leukemia. Uh, you have a twin sister, and her name is pronounced Oni. Is it Oni Blackstock? Yes. Okay. Yes. You both graduated from Harvard University and then attended Harvard Medical School, the school's first black mother-daughter legacy graduates. And I just was touched. You grew up in Crown Heights. Um, me and Sister Jennifer from Flatbush. I went to mm-hmm. um, I Street 20. Yeah, there you go. I went to I Street 20, Jackie Robinson, mm-hmm. right across the street from mm-hmm. Ebbets Field in Crown Heights. And mm-hmm. I was born. Mm-hmm. Born in Kings mm-hmm. County Hospital. So we got a little bit there of legacy there in that community. Um, 
Jennifer's going to start off uh, with a couple of questions uh, surrounding your book. So go ahead, Jennifer. So it's a it's a pleasure, it's a blessing, it's a privilege to be in conversation with Doc, with you, Dr. Blackstock. We often hear about the health outcomes and the disparities for black women when it comes to medical care. We not as often hear about the experiences of black men. Uh, very little is said about the experience of, of black physicians. And so I want to begin there. Um, help us to appreciate as best you can, I guess, and as succinctly as you can, your experience as a black physician and where you saw racism uh, present. Yeah, so thank you so much, um, both of you, for having me on. It's, it's always an honor. Um, yes, yeah, so, you know, I wrote this book you know, about being a second-generation Black woman physician because growing up in Brooklyn in the 80s and 90s in Crown Heights, I was surrounded by Black physicians. I thought that most physicians were Black, and I didn't realize until I got older that that was a very rare experience that I had. My pediatrician was black. We had other black doctors living on the block. And the best part of it is that they were working in our community. They were not going, you know, into the city and serving white communities. They literally were working in service to our communities, our family, our friends, and our neighbors. And so, as I mentioned, I didn't know until I was much older in college and medical school, looking around me and seeing what the numbers truly were that we are, you know, today less than 6% of all physicians, although black people make up more than 13% of the population. And it was in my own journey, you know, obviously the interpersonal racism that my mom experienced when she was in medical school that, and for me, it was less the interpersonal racism, more of what I did not learn. So we were using, for example, the HeLa cells, the Henrietta Lacks cells in our histology class first year medical school and never told the context of where those cells came from, that they were came from a 30 something year old black woman from impoverished Baltimore and her family did not know the cells were taken from her without her consent and companies have made millions and billions of dollars off of her cells. So that's the kind of thing that we didn't learn. We didn't learn about the history of, you know, J. Marion Sims, uh, you know, who's the father of modern gynecology who, made very wonderful experiments and inventions, but did so by experimenting on enslaved black women who could not get permission. So there was all this stuff, these educational gaps rather, that I did not learn. And then also seeing in my practice, like at Kings County, my patients coming in and recognizing why were my black patients so sick? You know, and recognizing that it wasn't about anything about us inherently, it was about how our communities have been deprived of resources, of wealth, because of systemic racism, like discriminatory housing policies, like redlining that impact our health. So here I was, you know, as a black woman, as a black physician, making these observations that my mother had made 20, 30 years earlier and wondering why things had not changed. Hmm. <clears throat> I tell you, I so tell what, you, this is, go ahead, Jennifer. No, no, I'm just, yeah, I listen to you and I, and I, I think about, you know, you said that you grew up in a neighborhood and I, I actually grew up on President Street uh, my first few years. Mm -hmm. And I remember that one of the first uh, black uh, uh, dermatologists, uh, Dr. Verno, I believe it was Verno Cave, he lived on. Yeah, that was, he was, my, he was my dermatologist. Yes, right yes, across from the yes. State School that we went to school. Right. Yes. So you know yes. well. Um, yes. What, what happened? 
what do you think happened? Like, why do you think that, you know, is it, has it, have black people been denied admission into yeah. medical school at yeah, okay. disproportionate rates? Like, what is yes. it? Yes. So, right. So I write about in the book, you know, what we see. So this is what Congresswoman Ayanna Presley refers to as policy violence. Policy violence. There are policies that are created that that happen and impact our communities. We may not see the impact for centuries. So one of the reasons I write about in my book is something called, you know, the Flexner Report, which was commissioned by the American Medical Association and the Carnegie Carnegie Mellon Foundation. And they commissioned this white education specialist named Abraham Flexner in 1910 to assess all 155 U.S. and Canadian medical schools and compare them against the gold standard at the time of Western European schools and Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. So as you know, at that time in the, in the, in the early 1900s, you know, we didn't know there were very few historically black colleges and universities. They were educating the majority of black physicians. There were seven open at the turn of the century. That report led to the closure of five out of seven of those historically black medical schools leaving behind wow. Howard and Meharry. And let you and I, I must tell you, Howard and Meharry still educate the most black physicians. Even with all the other medical schools that are open. We they, historically black colleges and universities are still carrying the highest burden. But all that to say there was a study done in twenty twenty. If those five medical other medical schools black schools had remained open, they would have educated between 25,000 and 35,000 black physicians. Mm. 25,000 and 35,000 black physicians erased. Can you imagine how many patients they would have cared for? Can you wow. imagine how many students and trainees they would have mentored, the research they would have done, not just in black health, but in health overall? So that is one reason why today we see that small number of black physicians because there were policies that closed our schools and predominantly white schools are not going to be as eager to admit us, right? Um, And because of the legacy of slavery, because of Jim Crow, we don't have um, the exposure at a young age like I did. My exposure was rare that I saw so many black physicians. That's not the case for most, most black children. We don't have the generational wealth, the resources, the education in our in our neighborhoods because of the legacy of discriminatory housing policies has led to lower quality education in our neighborhoods because property taxes go towards funding public schools. So what we look at, are looking at in 2024 is the culmination of policy violence, racist policies that continue to impact not just the health of our community, but the, the number of black physicians that we see. Mm. Let me give out that telephone number for folks to uh, speak with our special guest, Dr. Uche Blackstock. You can give us a call at 212-545-1075. Again, 212-545-1075 to talk about some of your experience uh, experience dealing with the medical uh, field, with racism. We want to hear from you. We want to hear your experiences or any questions for Dr. Blackstock. We're coming up on a break, but I have a question for you, Dr. Blackstock. Can you mm-hmm. share a pivotal moment from your own experiences that motivated you to address racism in medicine? Yeah, I, there were so many, but yes, but one was looking back on this experience I had as a first-year medical student when I was misdiagnosed with appendicitis. 
I had gone to our own, it was a Harvard teaching hospital with abdominal pain. I was questioned about how much pain I was in. I was told I was not in that much pain. I was questioned about my sexual activity repeatedly as if they didn't believe me. And I ended up having to go to the ER three times in the course of a week. My appendix eventually ruptured. I had complications. I had to miss a month of medical school. And I look back on that and I said, would that have happened if I wasn't a young black woman? Would I have been questioned about how much pain I was in, really in? Would I have been questioned about my sexual activity repeatedly and made to feel suspicious of? Um, That was one of the pivotal moments because I know so many of our patients, when we seek care, are treated like that. We're treated um, in a suspicious way. Our pain is minimized, ignored, and often even dismissed. And that causes misdiagnosis, delayed diagnosis, harm, and even death. And I know, you know, being an advocate for sickle cell disease, my wife, you know, was born with sickle cell. And um, I just watched the disparities between those that came in, folks of color, especially those with sickle cell and had pain and how they were treated versus other folks that came in that were not black and how, you know, what pain medications were administered. I remember dealing with Long Island College Hospital, downtown Brooklyn, which is no more. Mm -hmm. And I remember the sickle cell patients versus some of the cancer patients and they treated by the hematology oncology department. And I remember that the cancer patients would get the PCA pumps that would administer the pain medications pretty much as the doctor writes it, it would be administered intravenously. Well, the PCA pumps were not given to uh, the sickle cell patients who were also dealing with chronic pain. You know, mm-hmm. and I brought this mm-hmm. up with pain management and fought them. So they did a trial with some sickle cell patients at uh, Long Island College Hospital today, established that. But these are the things that we run into and still run into in the emergency room departments with health professionals, not in doctor's offices. These are the kind of disparities in, like you said, systemic racism that folks want to say, well, racism doesn't exist. But these right. are the kind of things right. that happen in the medical uh, field. I'll let you respond before we go to break oh no yes and actually if if i don't have enough time to give a response but i write about sickle cell disease in my book because i use it as an example of how because sickle cell has been racialized as a black disease in this country meaning it afflicts mostly black people in this country even though it's an inherited disease and and people from all around the world actually have it but because it's a black disease in the u.s research and funding has not gone towards finding cures for it treating it We don't have centers of excellence for it. So people with sickle cell disease often have to go to the ER. And in the ER, they are mistreated. They are stigmatized as as drug seekers seeking pain medication. So it compounds the problem, a systemic problem, to an interpersonal problem. And our patients with sickle cell disease get the worst quality care. You're right. And they call them frequent flyers. And it's crazy. Yes, it's it's yes. crazy. It's derogatory. Very, yes. They, yes they, there you yes. go. What we're going to do is we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Dr. Blackstock. Uh, in our announcement segment, we will be speaking uh, with Manhattan Borough President about an event that is taking place this coming Tuesday. You're listening to Open Line right here on 107.5 WBLS. We'll be right back after these messages.
Welcome back to Open Line right here on 107.5 WBLS with Brother Fatine and Jennifer Jones Austin Esquire and with our special guest, Dr. Uche Blackstock, talking about her new book, Legacy, A Black Physician Reckons with Racism in Medicine. To join our conversation, give us a call, 212-545-1075. You can reach us on Facebook or X, formerly known as Twitter, by going to WBLS 107.5 NYC and we are streaming live at WBLS.com and before we return to our special guests and to take your phone calls we have a couple of quick announcements open line the second hour on WBLS's Facebook page will be coming up at 9.10am this morning Sunday morning with Reverend Al Sharpton will be coming up at 9am to be followed by Express Yourself with Emotep Gary Bird at 10 a.m. this morning. Joining us on the live line is Mark Levine. He is the current and 28th Manhattan Borough President. Mark Levine uh, is informed by decades of experience in public service and is driven by a deep care for Manhattan and its people. Good morning, Manhattan Borough President Mark Levine. Welcome to Open Line. Thank you, Brother Fatine. It's honored, I'm honored to be here. And Jennifer, it's great to be here with you. Is Dr. Blackstock still on? Yes, she is. She is still yes, on. Yes, I'm She's here, Mark. On. How's it going? Good to, good to hear I, I your mean, voice. I just want everyone to know that Dr. Blackstock got me through the pandemic. She was one of the smartest, most important voices on the science of COVID. Someone who I deeply respect. And I haven't had a chance to tell you this directly, Dr. Blackstock, but I love the book. So everyone oh, out there needs you. to get it. It's, thank you. It's thank you so much. It's and thought-provoking. So thank wonderful you. to be on with you, Dr. Blackstock. I oh, appreciate you so much. It's a great book, and I per- I picked it up Friday. I have it right in front of me, and that's why I was able to. And it's an easy read. I'm telling you, it's a very, very easy and interesting read. But I have you on Manhattan Borough President uh, Mark Levine because you and WBLS are hosting Bronx-born Manhattan Made a Black History Month event, highlighting and celebrating the contributions of Manhattanites and institutions in development and growth of hip-hop. Can you talk a little bit about uh, this event that's taking place this coming Tuesday, February 20th? Yes, thank you so much. We do a Black History Month event every year, every February, and this year we are dedicating it to the Manhattan history of hip-hop. And some people might say, wait a minute, the Manhattan history of hip-hop? We know that the genre was born in the Bronx. But it really was until the artists were able to come to Manhattan and present their new art form to the world that the genre started to take off. This wasn't like today where you could put your music up on Spotify or SoundCloud or make a YouTube video and reach the world literally without leaving your apartment. Thinking back to the 70s and 80s, the only way to get your music out was to get a record deal, to perform in a big theater, to get on the radio, most importantly, And that was very, very difficult. Hip-hop artists back in those days were were blocked out of those institutions. And really the first major concert venue in the city, maybe one of the first in the world, that began to present hip-hop artists was the Apollo Theater. And around that time, the first major radio station that began to play hip-hop was BLS. 
And actually, both of those institutions were owned by a company called Inner City Broadcasting. And um, that was the, the business of the, the legendary business genius, Percy Sutton, who happened to be my predecessor. He was Manhattan Borough President uh, mm-hmm. back in the day. And one more connection here. His granddaughter, Keisha Sutton James, is our current Epony Manhattan Borough President, and uh, she'll, of course, be central to this event next week. So it's a great opportunity to tell this story, a long, overlooked story of the role Manhattan and Manhattan institutions played in the history of hip-hop. Exactly. And um, your office in WBLS will be honoring uh, honoring instrumental DJs and artists and hearing stories about breaking barriers and ultimate hip hop's impact on music. This event, this coming Tuesday, February 10th, 20th, excuse me, February 20th, will be taking place at 129th Convent Avenue. That's at the Aaron Davis Hall. That's uh, uh, City College, correct? Yes, that's right. Uh-huh, and there will yeah, be special... It's, 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 go ahead, please. Uh, yeah, special appearances will be by Cheryl Briggs, DJ Chuck Chillout, D-Nice, Dougie Fresh, Funkmaster Flex, Molly Maul, Grandmaster Flash, and others. Again, that address is 129 Convent Avenue. That's the Aaron Davis Hall. And uh, this event is free, is free. Doors open at 6 p.m. Now, folks have to RSVP, uh, Manhattan Borough President uh, Levine. How do people go about RSVP, RSVP and for this uh, it's, event? It's, it's very easy. You can go to our website. If you just Google Mark Levine Borough President on our website under events, you can see that there's a place to RSVP. Also, if you follow us on Instagram, um, there's a link uh, there that you can use. Uh, we really would love people to come. We're honoring folks who are are world famous, and and some who are not. Um, of course, we've got figures like D Nice, who let the record show. Born and raised in Harlem, I know he is thought of as a Bronx guy because that's really where he became famous. But uh, I think he lived in Harlem until he was 15. We've got right. uh, a true Harlemite and Dougie Fresh, um, but we also have people that might not be so well known. Uh, a woman named Mary Flowers, and she was at the Apollo during those early days and was the one who really began to to book and promote kind of from the business side these early hip-hop artists and later went out and and established her own very successful, influential hip-hop promotion company. Um, uh, The photographer, Ernie Panicchioli, which, again, is not quite as well-known but uh, if do you remember Word Up magazine from back? I know day? Ernie personally, so, so I know Ernie. Oh, okay, Ernie's well it. known in the New York City area. Trust me. <laughs> okay. All right. Good. Well, so all the pictures in Word Up magazine that was him. He's really uh, just a legendary hip hop artist. He's actually in the Hip Hop Hall of Fame. So, exactly. Um, so he's going to be coming. So so it's it's um, it's people famous and people who should be famous, and they're all going to be there to talk about this wonderful Manhattan history, and I hope everyone can join us. I hope so, too. All right, Manhattan Borough President Levine, thank you for joining us. Our time is a little short, so thank you for coming on. We want to make sure that we got this information out to our folks, okay? Thank you for having me, and hey, all the best to you, Dr. Blackstock. Okay, you too. You too, Mark. Okay. Thank you.
All right, take care. All right, so Jennifer, let's go to the phones. We have some uh, callers that want to speak with Dr. Blackstock, so I'll let you uh, start that off. Let's jump right in. Let's go to line two to Karen from Brooklyn. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Blackstock. First of all, thank you so much for this book, and thank you for all that you continue to do in our community. I'm born and raised in Brooklyn as well. One of the things, um, yes, racism do exist, and historically in the medical field, as it relates to our community, has existed and has had a negative effect on our community. I remember the great doctors. Some of them have passed on our black doctors in the community, Dr. Dees. Some of our doctors mm-hmm. are still, yes. still living. Yes. One of the things that, that concerned me is that too many of us as people of color are not health, are not our own health advocates, that even though we have racism that exists, I find that our ancestors and people before us, they took action. You know, they, they got the information. They reached out to our black doctors in the community and got information, passed it down to the family to help, you know, each other. It was like a united front. Now people are not motivated to be their own healthcare advocates. They don't ask questions. They don't read. They don't look into the conditions that are affecting their bodies. And, um, you know, I, I greatly appreciate you, you, you're, you're carrying a heavy load because, you know, you're doing so much and we need more of you in our community so we can get this health care thing under control. Because too many people are dying from diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and, um, you know, and they're, and they're passing young. So I want to thank you so much. I just ordered your book and um, thank I you. thank you very much. Thank, thank you, Karen. You. And, you know, and what, can I just respond to Karen and that? Yes, go ahead, Dr. Blackstaff. Yeah, yes, you know, I guess I do think people today are probably getting their sources of information just from other resources. You know, we know a lot of people get information from social media. It's a different kind of network and community than we had back in the day where, you know, our doctors, our black doctors were more accessible. But I just want to share that there are some really great resources out there like Help in Her Hue. That is a website um, started by a black woman that has a directory of culturally responsive health professionals for black people. Um, there's also another app, this app called the Earth app, I-R-T-H. That app also founded by a black woman, another directory of maternity care providers. So we are, you know, creating those solutions and it's happening right around us in our communities as well. All right, Jennifer. All right. Let's keep going. Let's talk with, uh, go to line four and talk with Mitch from Brooklyn. Good morning, Mitch. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, the infant mortality rate is higher in our community with our women and our children than in any ethnic group. And I don't see the money from the states and our elected officials being put to why this is happening. And also, another question is, I heard where SUNY Downstate is on the verge of being closed down, and that's going to affect our community in a big way. Uh, so I, I would appreciate it if you, if you try to call in on the questions, please. Mm-hmm. Appreciate that, Absolutely. Thank you. Yes, those are two amazing questions. First, I will say uh, for, for infant mortality and maternal mortality, I agree with Mitch that the solutions are solutions that not just community groups, but policymakers need to be involved in. So we know there's the, the Momnibus Act, 
that Representative Lauren Underwood is trying to get through Congress. She's been trying to push it through through the early early 2020s, um, but that would look at just it's a multi-strategy approach to improving maternal health, not just training health professionals on how to listen to us better, but improving telehealth, improving what we call the social determinants of health, access to healthy food in our communities. Because we know it's not just one thing that impacts our poor health outcomes. It really is what is happening at a community level in our communities and what happens when we seek care, right? Those are the two areas where we are seeing how racism plays out and and negatively impacts us. The other thing about SUNY Downstate, yes, I've also heard about it closing and the, the issue particularly is that neighborhood that it serves, mostly black, mostly working class um, and or low income. And it is the only kidney transplant center in Brooklyn. And we know that kidney disease, especially chronic kidney disease, afflicts our community disproportionately. So what is going to happen when SUNY Downstate closes and Kings County across the street is already at capacity? So those are the concerns I also have, and I know that a number of advocacy groups have been uh, organizing rallies to bring attention to this. And I just want to jump in here real quickly and share a little bit of uh, African-American history in New York City, and particularly Brooklyn. It was a downstate uh, going back to the late 60s where uh, the civil rights movement was in full in, in, you know, in, in full play, in full action, it was uh, Reverend Dr. Gardner C. Taylor and Reverend Dr. William Augustus Jones, Jr., mm-hmm. who realized the uh, state of New York was building this medical institute and was not employing people uh, of, of African descent in the actual construction of the downstate wow. medical center. And uh, Dr. Jones and Dr. Taylor brought uh, former state controller, uh, Carl McCall to New York to serve as the community mm-hmm. organizer. Malcolm X came out and watched Dr. William Augustus Jones, Gardner Taylor, Carl McCall, and others stand in protest and stand before bulldozers as they were trying to tear down what was there and build without having black New Yorkers be employed. And they shut it down. Ultimately, they contracted with black construction companies, and that is how Downstate Medical Center was built. My father actually mm. served as the first board chair of the Downstate Medical Center uh, Community Board. So that's a bit of history. When we think about now, it's being threatened. This is like where civil rights was taking place in New York City in the late 60s and the early 70s. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, thank you. That history is so important for us to know. Thank you for sharing that. Very, yes. very important. I wanted to try to get to these two calls, but unfortunately our time is short. So I apologize, Lisa and Ramona, that we were not able to get to your calls. Dr. Blackstock, I'll leave you with final thoughts about your book and any other thoughts on the topic of dealing with racism in the medical field. You know, what I will say, first of all, thank you so much for having me on and being able to speak to our community. What I will say is I wrote this book because, one, I want to make it very clear that there is nothing wrong inherently with us as black people in terms of our health. What's wrong is how the systems that are embedded with racism um, behave on our bodies. And so we really need to call on our policymakers, local 
um, state, federal policymakers to think about what health looks like in all policies. How do we give back to our communities? And I, you know, I even talk about uh, reparations and briefly at the end of the book. But how do we invest in our communities, give our communities the resources, the wealth, the opportunities that has been deprived from for so long in this country to make us healthier. And I think a lot of the solutions are going to be policy solution, policy solutions, but they also are going to be Black-led, community-led, uh, patient-centered solutions. Um, and we need to see what is happening hyper-local and locally in our communities. Okay, Dr. Uche Blackstock. And the book, again, the title is Legacy, A Black Physician Reckons with Racism in Medicine. You can go to uh, Amazon.com. You can go to Barnes & Noble. Is there any other ways that folks can get oh, yes, your book? And please, yes, any local. I, I, I want to encourage people to use your local black booksellers. I actually have a campaign with Cafe Con Libros, a black woman-owned bookstore in Crown Heights, two blocks from where I grew up on Prospect and Rogers. You can get a signed copy if you order through their website. I, I'm going for as long as people order and I'm signing those books. Um, so I encourage that. I'm also excited to share that the book made uh-huh. New York Times bestseller list the first two weeks. Um, and so people care deeply about this issue and want to make a difference. All right. Congratulations, Congratulations to you, Dr. Blackstock. And ja- and thank you for joining us. And you know, you're not a stranger. We will have you back. Yeah, yes. Thank you. And you can definitely. And you can definitely reach out to us. Don't wait for us to call you if there's okay. something that you want yes. to talk about. OK. OK. It was an honor. Right, thank thank you. you as usual. Thank All you right. so much, Jennifer. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Brother. OK, bye bye. Thank you. Bye. All right, Jennifer, we are out of time. I want to thank you for another great show. I want to thank Manhattan Borough President uh, Mark Levine. And I also want to thank uh, Keisha Sutton James for making that connection. Let me thank our production team, Open Line uh, producer, Knowledge Born, associate producer, Robin Williams, production assistant, Juliana Merville, and tech producer is Rick Wright. And remember, folks, our unity should remain strong. Keep amplifying black voices. Keep celebrating black culture and keep shining in all your black brilliance. Until next time, stay locked, stay empowered and keep vibing with Open Line and the WBLS family. This is where the rhythm meets the revolution. Peace, love and solidarity. Have a great Sunday.